Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. I'm Tatum Durock, and today it's all about causes and cures. And there's so much information out there, isn't there, that tells us why we get cancer and what we might be able to do to make it go away or make it not come back again. And with all that information, it's really hard to find out how to know the difference between the science and the snake oil. And so I have two amazing guests here with me today to help figure that out. I have Professor Gerard Evans joining us, and he's been working in cancer, the study of cancer, um, since the late 70s. So yeah, knows knows a thing or two. No imagination. (laughs) And we've got Kynwin Giles as well, um, one of the co-founders of Shine Cancer Support. Hi. (laughs) Um, And... And what would you say um, kind of when it happens to a lot of people who are told that their cancer is started by, um, we'll say, childhood trauma or mm. what they ate? Like, what what is the effect that that happens? That- that that has on people. I think it's really interesting. I mean, we we work with like thousands of younger adults with cancer, and I think probably everybody gets that at some point. You know, either told, oh, were you really stressed when you were diagnosed with cancer? Because that's probably why you got it. Or once they're in treatment, someone will say, oh, you know, have you tried apricot kernels? Because I've heard that that's going to cure your cancer. Um, I know when I was in treatment and I had um, stage four non-Hodgkin lymphoma and I had to do really high-dose chemotherapy. I remember somebody emailing my mom and saying, oh, I've got some great herbal remedy that will prevent your daughter from losing her hair. And then thinking, how it... How is that even possible, first of all? Um, and then also, like, if I'm that sick, maybe the hair needs to go, you know? Like, I, you don't want to mess around. So, yeah, it, but there's just so much stuff out there. And I think the Internet, I mean, I sound like really old, but the Internet is making it worse because there's so much stuff that can look legit when it's not. Mm-hmm. And I know that I got sent videos of, um, you know, that big pharma was basically hiding um, the cure for cancer and um, that all the treatments I was doing was actually a waste. So I wanted to ask you, (laughs) Professor Evans, um, has anyone ever told you that your work is a waste of time and the cure is already out there and it's just being held from us? Uh, Nobody's ever told me, but I've certainly heard of this sort of thing. And um, I sort of wake up in the morning waiting for the phone call to join this conspiracy. I've never had one. And (laughs) nobody I know has ever had one. I think people uh, misunderstand what's going on in cancer research. They think that um, it's just a a sort of engineering project that we know everything that's going on and we just have to sort of apply ourselves and then we can fix it. We're not at that stage yet. These things are too complicated for us to understand at the moment. And so we know from a huge community around the world that it's impossible to understand the basic mechanisms of cancer and implement cures for an awful lot of them at the moment. 
what we've seen, though, in the last 10 years is tremendous revolution in new treatments and new therapies based on understanding how cancers work. So it's understanding how cancers work that is the, the problem at the moment, that is the, the, the block in the system. And that hasn't been solved by any pharmaceutical company. It hasn't been solved by anybody. And if I could s solve it, I'd be incredibly rich. <laughs> so um, I'd probably give it, all the money back to the community, but it hasn't happened yet. So in the absence of that knowledge, I think a lot of people have, have filled that space yes. um, with um, putting you know, the causes of cancer down to things like um, emotional trauma. So a lot of people think that maybe, you know, they went through a lot in their childhood, that that had an effect on their bodies. And, you know, people will talk a lot about dis-ease, mm. um, that that, you know, festers and then later in life you get cancer. What would you say to someone who's been told something like that? Well, I'd say that um, <clears throat> even if that some of that did contribute and there's no mechanistic way that I could see how it would. But even if it did, it's a bit like saying um, you've got a 10-year-old who's going to um, fill the bath up and make it overflow. So he puts bucket after bucket after bucket in, and then the last bucket makes it overflow. Which is the critical bucket? Well, there isn't one. OK, we blame the last bucket. That's when he gets told off or she gets told off. But it doesn't work like that. It's all of these things in combination. And most mm. of these things you can't control. And there's also evidence that um, things that happen to you that are tough actually strengthen you in some way. So I don't know. I don't think there's any plausible mechanistic connection between any of these different things. But human beings like to find causes for things, particularly in a way that can't be tested. So I don't see that there's any reason for people to feel in any way that they can attribute their disease to any single thing or even any group of things. I think, it, you know, when you receive that diagnosis, you lose an essential element of control of your life. Yes. You now no longer know you're thrown into this you know, whole new landscape, this whole new way of being. This physical body is often very changed by the experience. Um, and... And Kynwin, would you say that a lot of people from that really want to fill that space and get some element of control back by yeah. attaching? Of course. And I think, I mean, for, for the people that we support, so people in their 20s, 30s and 40s as well, I think they have, you don't know, you don't realize you have a sense of invincibility until that sense of invincibility is gone. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're going, oh, my God, you know, I didn't realize that. Yeah, you didn't know that you felt that way until you don't feel that way anymore. And I think, you know, the stuff that you can read about emotional trauma or stress or certain types of food or whatever, um, which can help cure your cancer or were the reason that you got it in the first place so you can stop doing them, um, that g gives you a sense of control. It might not be real, mm -hmm. um, but it, when everything else is out of control... <clears throat> then that's a totally reasonable response. You can at least do something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. And as long as it's, I mean, a lot of times, you know, you think, well, it's not going to hurt me. So obviously there are cases, um, you know, there's an example we use at Shine where people have actually poisoned, given themselves cyanide poisoning by taking too many apricot kernels. Um, so you can hurt yourself. Um, but yeah, it makes complete sense that people would do it. I myself have gone down that rabbit hole occasionally. What have you so. done? What have you um, thought? your cancer was caused by or thought might cure it? I think, 
I mean, I've wondered, you know, I was under a huge amount of stress when I, I developed cancer when I was pregnant, right? So then I thought, well, was it the pregnancy? Was I stressed when I was pregnant? Was I, I used to travel a lot for work. So was I exposed to all kinds of chemicals when I lived, I lived in Vietnam, right? So there you go. There's like, you know, Agent Orange. Is that what gave mm-hmm. it to me? Um, yeah, all kinds of things. And then I've, you know, I've, I was telling you earlier, I one, at one point was really into omegas, omegas three and mm. six and nine. And I went and bought this really expensive, um, it was like an olive oil that was infused with omegas three, six and nines. And um, then got home and looked up, I think it was omega sixes, which can actually give you like heart disease and high blood yeah. pressure and stroke. So and I was like, okay, I'm curing my cancer, but I'm going to yeah, give myself yeah. a stroke. It's a real minefield. Yeah, it was, it's interesting that you mentioned Vietnam because mm. I remember about 3 a.m. in the morning, um, right at the beginning, um, I blamed Florida for mine because I'd lived in Florida yeah. for five years and I figured something in Florida caused it. Mm. Because I do think there's a little bit of magical thinking that happens around yeah. cancer and and our survival to to get through it. So, um, so sort of bringing it back to the, the, the science, like... As a scientist, how do you view stories of radical remission? Well, I mean, I'm a scientist, so mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I'm, I'm open to anything. I mean, if something can be shown to be true, then the only difference between me and a non-scientist is I reserve the right to try and work out how it happened. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, I'm not blinkered. I don't think um, we're all blinkered in some ways, but I'm not blinkered in any way. I mean, you know, as a scientist, I thrive on weird stuff. And stuff I can't explain, but I want to find an explanation for it. Mm-hmm. So there are obviously documented instances of remission of certain cancers, spontaneous remission. And in fact, recently in diseases like a few diseases like um, terminal melanoma, by this tweak of manipulating the body's own immune system, we have actually been able to induce in patients uh, remission, not spontaneous, because we, we know what sort of what we're doing but it, it has induced a complete remission of these uh, 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 of the disease in these patients and they've gone on to be cured when every other therapy uh, was not working anymore so clearly it can happen in certain cancers in certain circumstances and if it can happen in some then maybe it can happen in others I'd like to try and find out how that worked. And then, of course, we want to work out how to initiate it effectively every time. And we can get away from, at least in principle, get away from these other therapies that we have now, which, are, you know, many of them are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. They were in, discovered really in the Second World War as, as, as toxic agents, which were then used for chemotherapy. Mm. We don't want to do that to human beings anymore. We want to Give them something that makes the cancer go away without making them feel sick or ill or their hair fall out or anything else like that. Which brings me to, I think, this quite entrenched point of view of like Big Pharma having so much invested in chemotherapy that that they're not going to let us do anything else. Um, Nobody makes money out of chemotherapy. The drugs have been around for donkey's ages. Um, The... the 
armamentarium for chemotherapy with some variations in, in how the, the agents are deployed and administered and various other things. Most of these things have been around for 20, 30, 40 years. This isn't where pharma is going to make mm. any money. They're going to make um, money available and I don't want to get into the debate somebody has to pay for this stuff I'd rather governments paid for it but you know that's not going to happen but where farmers going to make money is these very very new modalities because mm -hmm. all cancer patients want to be cured they want to be cured um, definitely cured and they don't want to feel like 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 trash when they're being mm -hmm. treated and cured and everybody wants this not just patients, but everybody who, who knows anybody who has cancer, the rest of humanity wants this as well. And it's achievable, I believe. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Mm. Like turning that on its head that actually, you know, if they came out with all the very individualized immunotherapies, there would be more money in that than... Yeah. Um, and then the idea would be how to make that as cheap chemo. as possible right. so that it's accessible to everybody in the world, Yeah, which is what we want. And speaking of, I'd love to hear your take on, um, so one of the things that quite a few people are doing when they have cancer and when they're going often through treatment is um, this idea of starving the cancer. Mm -hmm. So some people will say that sugar feeds cancer right. and so they will cut all sugar from their mm -hmm. diet. Some people will go on such low calorie to just stay alive with the idea that um, you know, the rest of the calories is actually fueling the cancer. Um, what is your take on that? Well, there is recent work definitely showing that in certain experimental conditions and probably mainly in animal models, that if you starve certain types of cancer, not all cancers are the same, <coughs> excuse me, but you starve certain types of cancer of a lot of sugar in the diet, that that is actually a good thing. And I think Everybody would accept the fact that cutting down sugar, that is n not things that make sugar like starch and everything else, but cutting down pure sugars um, is is absolutely a good thing. It's a good thing not only from suppressing cancers to some degree, but also heart disease and all the other things, obesity and diabetes and so, so on and so forth. We're talking about refined sugars. We're talking about, yeah, your refined sugars or we're talking about, you know, Corn syrup, for example, okay. mm. uh, in the U.S., for example, everything is sweetened with uh, with corn syrup, which is a fructose, a, a type of sugar, which appears to be particularly bad because it short circuits the control systems that balance how sugar is metabolized in the body. When you take a big sugar rush, the body, your liver in particular, just has to decide what to do with it. And so it, it produces, um, it, it, it activates all sorts of mechanisms to store um, that sugar is starch, glycogen, actually, on the basis of this hormone insulin that's produced by these cells in the pancreas. It's a very interesting, complicated sort of a, a, a coordination between all these different types of cell in the body. And it dumps the, that sugar into a, this storage space. But if you run out of storage space, you just sort of burn it and then you convert it in, or you convert it into fat. And fat you know, we have evolved for fat to be our long-term storage through the ghastly winter months when Ugg the caveman uh, was wandering around unable to find anything to forage and had to live off fat. 
we don't have to live off fat in what we fondly call the developed world. And so it just accumulates and accumulates. And we're in a range of diseases now that never existed throughout the evolution of human beings. And if we can cut that back, that's definitely good for everything, not just for cancer, but for heart disease, probably for Alzheimer's and certainly for diabetes as well and all the complications of diabetes. Interesting. So... So we're thinking in terms of like very sugary things like cakes and biscuits and things that have had like sugars and syrups put in. Are we talking about fruits or um, things that are naturally sugary? Well, there's a big debate about that. So uh, uh, I was one of these people who thought fruit's good. Mm-hmm. So I started drinking, I know, about 20 years ago, gallons of orange juice. Now, the problem is that the amount of fruit you have to eat in order to um, it'd be the equivalent of uh, half a litre of orange juice. You'd have to eat, you know, the world supply of this room full of oranges mm. type thing. So um, in actual fact, the the, the, uh, the the sugar intake from natural fruit juices is huge. It's like Coca-Cola. So you shouldn't drink tons and tons of natural orange juice. And um, after having decided that it was very healthy for me, I now limit myself to a small glass a day. And I love it, of course, you know, <laughs> but I don't glug, glug, glug it, which I used to do. So everything in excess that has a lot of sugar in it, whether it be natural or, quote, unnatural, uh, is, 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 is the same. You shouldn't take in a lot of um, free sugar. So what would you say to someone who is trying to cut down on sugar and then occasionally, you know, I mean, I just, I, I know a few of my friends who um, who tried and then just like broke down when they had a biscuit or broke down like, you know, was the sugar in this bread or was the sugar coating? Because mm. in the, um, restaurants, they often put sugar in with vegetables. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Weird. Um, you know, I had a friend of mine... caramelizes sometimes when, yes. they, when they stir fire okay. or right. something like the, that. You know, at what point do you think, um, if someone's looking for a kind of a, a, a way to go through this that doesn't <laughs> tip over into um, affecting their life... Mm. Well, I think there's two things here. One mm. is, um, what do you do if you have cancer and you, about your sugar intake? And I think cut it down. I think such as evidences exist suggests that cutting down on sugar doesn't do any harm. Okay. okay. If you're talking about people who don't have cancer and it's a lifestyle thing and they're in, they're at danger of obesity and diabetes and everything else, cutting down sugar as much as they can is probably enough. And also just cutting down generally on food. People eat tons. I, I'm of the generation where if a plate of food was put in front of me, it was your duty to eat it all. Yes. Okay. And I can't, you know, I have to kick that habit and leave some. So as long as it's there, stuffing it away, <laughs> and go, oh, I don't need it. My 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 um grandmother, you know, she would, uh, who was a large lady, wonderful lady, a large lady, lived to 96, by the way. But uh, she would always say if there was food left over, well, mustn't waste it. Chomp, chomp, yes. chomp, chomp. And you go, Grandma, you're turning it into fat. <laughs> yeah, you know, it depends what you mean by waste. It would probably be better to, you know, just to not eat it and have keep it for tomorrow or something else mm-hmm. like that. So I think just keeping the quantity of food down is very good. Keeping the quality of food up is very good. You know, fresh vegetables, not too much meat, chicken rather than beef. I love beef. I like chicken too. Um, and trying to do your best to get rid of refined sugars, not eat biscuits and these other things, except as a treat. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of chocolate in the evening, but gobbling the whole bar. 
Okay. So, um, so yeah, a little bit is not going to. If no. somebody's sitting there and they do have a little bit, it's not literally going no. in and feeding it and no, causing no, it to no, grow. There's no roster up there. This is all cross for today. You know, bad. You know, anything like. Nobody's judging you, but yourself. All right. And whatever you do, it cannot stop cancers from occurring because a lot of it's dictated by random chance. And that's the problem that we have. We can't predict who will and who won't get cancer, who will or who won't relapse. We've got sort of guidelines, but it's always a, a judgment based on looking at the patient, looking at the individual disease. And people want certainty, and of course yes. they want certainty, and we need to be able to provide them with some certainty. The certainty they want is, here's a tablet, it will make your cancer go away. That's the only certainty that will do. Yeah. And in the or, app, or oh. don't don't eat sugar and you won't get cancer, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. I, I saw something. Somebody shared something online that said, you know, I've cut out sugar and I feel so good knowing I'll never get cancer. Yeah. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I, that's that's a certainty they want. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've heard it in yoga classes. You know, yeah. do this and you're not going to get heart disease or cancer. And I'm sitting there like, <laughs> really? Because yeah. I was a yoga teacher yeah. and you got it. You know. And I mean, some things you can do don't smoke. That's a very sensible idea. I mean, smoking is responsible for a huge amount of cancers, not just lung cancer, but all sorts of other cancers as well. So if you stop that, that's definitely a good thing. I mean, I don't think anybody has any dispute about that. A lot of these other things, it's still not proven. It's still not clear. And it's still not clear how easy it is to implement these changes in diet and everything else anyway. So, So our approach to our health um, because there's a lot that really puts an emphasis on mindset you know whether it be in adverts whether it be in films you know it's a kind of our popular culture is a lot about you know you've got to fight you've got to be positive you've got to you know battle through it and you know people who are considered to have a reason to live are supposed to do better and so there's a lot that's that's put on mindset would you say that mindset can make a difference to our cancer when you're the expert here. Oh, God. Well, um, I, I don't know the biology of it. No, I not mean, the biology. Yeah. But you, you, I, there are two things here. One is the biology. I can mm-hmm. talk about that. But how you feel during the whole process and the mindset that you have to have in order to you know, keep going and not become depressed and you know, the quality of your life while you have this disease, I think, mm. you know. Well, I remember my hematologist, because I spent six months in the hospital and had a lot of people telling me I needed a PMA, positive mental attitude. And I remember him saying, um, it will make a difference to your quality of life. It will not make a difference to whether the treatment yeah. works. Right. And actually, for me, that was hugely valuable yeah. because I had mm-hmm. been sitting there beating myself up, thinking, well, I don't feel particularly positive, actually. Um, I've just had a baby. I've got stage four cancer. I'm stuck in the hospital. That's not a positive experience. No. <laughs> um, and so I think it, I mean, it helps. And I think if you can do it, like my doctor said, you know, it does help your quality of life. Obviously, if you can learn to appreciate the things that you do have while you're going through a terrible time. And often, you know, we we work with people who, you know, you do, cancer does kind of clarify in a way. Facing any sort of life-threatening illness, I think, clarifies what's really important to you. Hopefully that you have good people around you. You know, what, you know, I remember thinking, well, actually, I don't have many regrets. Um, I, I was happy with the things I'd done in my life. You know, not that I'd never made mistakes, but it was all, you know, pretty kind of going in the same path. Um, but 
what I see sometimes is it's that guilt of not feeling positive, right? And then yes. it's counter, it's it's oh, yeah. it's not useful. Um, and actually, I think there is something quite powerful also about admitting, like, this isn't a very happy, positive experience to have. It's mm-hmm. not something you would wish on your worst enemy. Well, yeah, so. I mean, definitely. I've been stressed about being stressed. Yes, yeah. And sure. then felt really negative about being negative. Mm-hmm. And, like, you can just get in these loops and then you think, oh, my God, what am I, what am I doing to myself? But it victimizes people. Um, uh, it's not just the patient um, herself or himself. It's also what everybody else in the family and the friends think. I mean, if you succumb to cancer, and uh, are, you, are you really going to say it was the partly the patient's fault for not fighting it, whatever that means? That's mm. rubbish. I mean, it's appalling. And it, <clears throat> in fact, the language we speak about cancers. Mm. Even amongst my peers, or, you know, cancer cells are clever, they outwit the therapies and everything. This is all rubbish. It's bad biology, but it's awful for patients because it depicts having cancer as some sort of existential battle between good and evil, which, uh, you know, if they, if they succumb, they ultimately fail in that battle. This is just rubbish. It's not how it is at all. Everybody wants to live. Everybody wants to fight this disease. And you know, what we've got to do is, is, is help them, but you know, help them with physical things that actually make a difference. And then their mindset will be, you know, if I came to you in 40 years' time and you, uh, God forbid, had a diagnosis of cancer, <clears throat> and I could say to you, oh, well, because of the advances in cell and molecular biology and cancer medicine, just take this pill. I don't need to know where it is, who it is, you know, what the symptoms are. It'll make the cancer go away. I bet you your mindset will be pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. It's really interesting um, about mindset that you brought up is the family. Because yeah. I've spoken to a lot of people who you can feel actually a little bit of um, uh, anger mm-hmm. and betrayal that their partner has yep. left them. Um, and and they will say things like, well, they gave up. And, you know, from a biological point of view, if cancer's really advanced... Mm-hmm. Would giving up, I mean, you know, obviously I'm using yeah, yeah. air quotes here. <laughs> yeah. um, would that make you die? No, no. I mean, it's got very little to do with it. It might affect your quality of life and your feeling about your impending uh, departure, but it's not going to change anything. I mean, your brain doesn't ha- doesn't have very much control over the somatic cells in the body, the body, the cells that make up the tissues of your body. And there are mutations driving cancers, and your brain's not going to be able to fix those mutations, and it's not going to be able to necessarily fix those cells. What it can do is change the way that you approach, you know, what is going to happen. Um, but I think this is true. I mean, I, you know, my parents died when I was very young. Okay, I was seven when my mum died and 15 when my dad died. Do I remember feeling anger? Well, not when my mum died. She died of an asthma attack. Um, but I did when my dad died, yeah, because he'd, he'd left me, you know. And, yeah, of course that. But the important thing is I, I was given help and support. And very quickly realized that it wasn't anything to do with him or me. This is just a natural feeling that you have when somebody you really care about and love disappears. 
and and your brain just responds in a very um, reflex way. It, it's less interested in why they disappear and more interested in the fact that they have disappeared. Mm. And you have to learn the difference. Yeah, I think absolutely there's those stages of, mm. of um, grief. Yeah. I think what happens when people start to attribute... Um, properties to cancer uh, prevention or curing is then it becomes very personal and then it and then it's like almost they've attributed not just that they died and they they left but that they didn't do something to stay Hmm. but it's interesting that you say that even as a scientist you guys use language sort of like the cells are outwitting the therapies and that kind of thing so it does it's like everyone, everything's got a brain and it's trying to... Yeah. So, so the biggest problem in teaching biology, and you know, I work in a university, I teach undergraduates, the biggest hurdle we have to overcome is to take the intent and purpose out of what we see in biology. Mm. So there isn't a brain inside a cell making it good or bad. Mm. Um, that, that's something that, that humans have because they've got so many cells all interacting. And what emerges from that is the sense of self and purpose and various other things. And indeed, it exists. But not everything has a little gremlin inside, you know, pushing levers and buttons and, and, and cackling <laughs> type thing. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, our bodies are remarkable examples of self-organizing systems uh, which control each other by contacting each other. It's more like an economy, for example. Um, And there isn't a a direction going on. The the, the only direction you have is what you can impose upon it. And this is what's happening when somebody dies and you're left alone. You impose upon this thing that didn't have any intent about it uh, some mechanism for why it happened. Mm. And it's called blame. And we live in a society now that thinks you can solve problems by blaming people. That doesn't solve the problem. And it doesn't solve cancer. Yeah, that I mean, that's <laughs> I just wanted to like take that in, like, yeah. it, because I think a lot of us walk around with guilt and blame yeah. and and kind of this feeling that maybe if we untangled it, maybe we, we could. could yeah, so yeah, searching that's, for the why. I think yeah. I ha- I mean, my personally have spent you know hours and hours thinking, mm. oh, did I do this wrong or should I have done something else? Um, and yeah, I mean, it would be. I would. I'm taking over now. I just. I would love Please. to know what you think then is the cause. So somebody who is a yoga instructor or a vegetarian, or you know, they've lived a relatively normal, healthy life, mm-hmm. and they're 30 and they get cancer. Mm-hmm. Why? So have you ever played Monopoly, mm, the game? Of course. Have you ever thrown a double six? Very rarely. Mm, but you have thrown double yeah. six. Did you immediately stop and think why? Who's to blame for that? No. I no. Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. it's positive. Yeah. Uh, but if you needed if you needed a double one to win and you yeah. didn't get it, you go, ah, oh, like that. You know, the fact is it's a lot of randomness in life. A lot of things that are under nobody's control. Cancer is a disease that arises because of random errors that accumulate within the, the genetic material of individual cells. And you can increase the chances of that happening to some degree, but you can't increase, you can't control what the damage would be that happens. So, for example, if you decide to go to Chernobyl and hang out for, you know, for, for years where there's background radiation is very, very high, it'll increase the chances that damage will happen to your DNA. But whether that damage leads to cancer is not anything that's under your control, it's just random. You've got you know, 30,000 genes in your genome and about three or 400 get damaged and can cause cancer as long as 
they're damaged in a particular way, and you can't control that, and the radiation doesn't care either. I mean, I think you know one of the things that people might find difficult to deal with, but I actually find very comforting, is that actually the universe doesn't care. It's not making decisions about you or evil things happening to you because there's a malign uh, influence going on. You know, we are free in the universe, and the only thing that we should be that should care is us, and we should care about each other. And everything else just moves along in the universe and sails along. I find that really rather comforting. Mm. I find it a bit scary. So, <laughs> but <laughs> you, so you can add to that. You can say that there is a purpose, and I have no problem with that, mm. and believe in God or something else like that. But that doesn't mean to say that you'd blame God for your disease. Okay. No. So, uh, <laughs> me and my best friend used to say something that sounded really negative, um, but it was quite freeing to mm. us. Which was, um, and we were talking about relationships. Nothing means anything, and anything means nothing. Mm-hmm. Which sounded really dark, you know, like you could be with someone for 17 years and then have no idea that they have, you know, another wife and a kid somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You could be with someone for, you know, a very short period of time um, that everything is going great and then one day it doesn't, you Mm -hmm. know, or that they're kind of okay and then they turn out to be amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. and in a way it took a lot of the pressure off of like trying to figure it all out Mm -hmm. and like trying to deal drill down into yeah. something there was kind of a, a a release of control yeah or responsibility yeah yeah which and, I, yeah. I i guess what yeah. you're saying these yeah. things are yeah. happening all of the time and mm. right we... and that you're more along for the ride you're instead yeah. of trying to figure out you know where someone's going to be five years from now ten years and where am i going to be the five years and ten years from mm. now it's kind of like eh you know, yeah. where are but we I rem- now? I remember when there was this desert desiderata that everybody had when I was a kid that was, you know, you know, advice on how to behave and everything else like that. And I remember after my father died when I, you know, was 15, 16, being very, very um, dark and depressed about it. And I remember reading, reading it one time thinking, Ugh. but it said something at the end. It said, you have a right to be here. And I thought that was a very magical thing. It didn't say what would happen to you while you were here, but you had a right to be here. And as you say, experience it and come along for the ride. And uh, good things happen, bad things happen. And um, the, the, But, but it's, it's endlessly interesting. Yeah. And the Desiderato that starts, I'm going to paraphrase mm. probably badly, mm. um, it, it's it's a, a prayer yeah. sort of saying, God, um, you know, help me accept the things I cannot change yeah. and give me the strength to change the things That's I can okay. yeah. and the knowledge to tell the difference between yeah. the two. And they're exactly where we are. Yeah. And I think, that, you know, for a lot of us with cancer, that, you know, is it taking the God part out of the equation mm. that that is mm. what we struggle? Like, what bits do we accept mm. about what we're going through? And what bits do we try and change and adapt mm. and do the right thing um, to help us out? So what I would say is that... Um not everybody wants to do this because everyone's got other important things to do. But what keeps me going is I want to try and fix this. And no, I know I won't fix it. I know I won't find the cure for cancer. But I, anything I can do to add a little bit to it and with my other colleagues around the world, 
there's lots of very dedicated people who just wanted to lick this disease, you know, and uh, make it a thing in uh, uh, just history. So I, I have lots more questions to ask you about that, <laughs> about what's going on, um, about these, um, you know, how, how to know w- what the next steps are in, in mm. cancer research, what is happening. We'll be right back with Gerard and Kynwin. So we're back with Gerard and Kynwin talking about causes and cures. And one of the things that's marketed um, uh, unofficially marketed as a cure for cancer is uh, CBD oil. And I would love to know, like, how do we know when something says unofficially or under the radar um, that something is a cure. How can we tell if there's something to it or if it's snake oil? Well, there are usually two signs, I guess. One is that um, the people who are proposing it tend to be rather vague about which particular types of cancer or disease this is good for. Because lots of different cancers have very fundamentally different mechanisms, it, it's very unlikely that you, not impossible, but very unlikely that you would end up with one thing that, that can be used to cure all of them. But the second, and speaking here as a scientist, um, what's the mechanism by which you would do that? So we understand a lot about the mechanisms that make different cancers in different patients. Uh, in what way would um, a cannabis oil impact upon that? And um, block the the process of, of cancer. How would that work? Th- these things are not magic. You know, the thing about biology, it's A goes to B goes to C. There's a lot going on at the same time, so it, it's complicated, but uh, essentially it's lots of things just communicating one signal from one place to another place and triggering various types of response. How would uh, CBD oil uh, interfere with that in such a constructive way. I can't see any mechanism that's plausible. And the people who are proponents of it don't ever promote a mechanism. So I would have said that that is probably a sign that, that it's being um, over over pushed. Mm. So, so things to look for are if um, something is saying that it it uh, helps all cancers, mm-hmm. um, so if they're kind of vague, mm-hmm. and if they're not saying this is working because of um, yeah. certain mechanisms. Yeah, and the important point there is that um, if, if any drug, uh, if anything's ever going to be used as a drug for patients, we need to understand how it works. There need to be clinical trials, safety needs to be assessed, efficacy needs to be assessed, so that it can be used for everybody. I mean, if CBD oil really was a generic anti-cancer drug, I'd like it to be out there in the world because it's pretty much dirt cheap. And it should we should be using it to cure millions of cancer patients all around the world. Uh, the other thing that always makes me suspicious is if... It, the, the substance is either illicit or it's only available in a particular mm-hmm. place in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. And again, Germany, uh, uh, Germany um, or wherever, South America, Mexico, yeah. you know, various other things. It's often the way and people, uh, you know, the sad thing is it, it plays on people's desperation. 
They think, my God, if I can just go somewhere suitably exotic or different, they will have something that no one else in the world has. You know, the the cancer community around the world is um, not close-knit because it's so huge, but communications across are enormous. Um, it's very difficult to imagine that something can happen in some country somewhere that isn't interwoven with all of the other things that are happening everywhere else. Interesting. Would you say that's the same? I'm just thinking of, you know, there's some online people who have quite large followings online who will say, well, I cured my cancer by eating a raw food diet. And so this is what all cancer patients should do. Would you apply the same kind of logic then? Like, so how how is it that a raw food diet has helped your cancer or any other cancer, I suppose? It's well, a good question. Well, first of all, what's the evidence that the claim is true? Yeah. Okay, which is they, they've got a what we call a number, an N of one, yes. which is them, right? Okay, so um, so it, even if it ever turned out to be true, which, which I'll come on to in a second, uh, there's no evidence it would necessarily work for anyone else. I mean, but but if it, if it were true and it did work, then I, of course, well, I'd be incredibly excited about it. Mm. We'd like to know how it worked. The fact is that there's no obvious mechanism uh, by which it, it could possibly work. Um, that doesn't mean to say I necessarily refute it, but I'd like to see more evidence um, put forward. And it's, these things are not done on the basis of evidence. They're done on the basis of a sort of some apocryphal observation in one individual at one point in time. Mm. And that's not good enough. And I think that's uh, like the the evidence is also really tricky because a lot of those videos, Mm. you know, that say, oh, I, you know, switched to a vegan diet or a raw food diet. And when you dig deeper in the video, it's like, oh, you know, we thought we had three months left to live and um, this this is how we did it. And when you actually Google them you find out that they went through treatments. Oh, they had surgery and chemo, but they turned down the radiation, yeah. and that's what that's what saved yeah. them when they switched to the raw food diet. I know. The amount of those claims, you know, are from people that had, yeah, part of the treatment mm. and then claimed, and, and maybe as a, as a way to get in some control themselves. So, yeah, it is. I think, you know, I, I've got nothing against, I don't think any... any any member of the cancer research community is anything against people putting forward bold claims. The point is that's not enough. Bold claims have to be um, backed up by observation and by fact. Uh, we need to look at all the data and everything. So I, I don't want to put a you know damper on, on some amazing thing that could happen um, the sun in another galaxy might explode and send cosmic rays. I mean, who knows? I mean, you can invent anything you want. That's the problem. You can invent anything you want. Distilling it down to a reproducible treatment that works on many different people, that's much, much more difficult. And that's what's missing in a lot of these. So is there's how many different types of cancer? Well, how many different types of cells do you have in your body? I mean, nobody really knows. I mean, there are the commonest types of cancer, which usually affect, at least in what we call um, uh, adult cancers, not young adult cancers. The commonest cancers tend to be cancers of the lining, the surface lining of tissues called the epithelium. In younger people, they tend to be um, diseases of the blood and uh, also of the bones and connective tissue. 
we suspect that the young person's cancers have got more to do with developmental programs that have gone wrong. Because if you imagine you start from a single fertilized egg and then you have to build all the different cell types and everything has to work out where it is relative to everything else. And if that goes wrong, you can get overproduction of cells in one particular uh, place or organ. Mm -hmm. And those are developmental problems. The, the, the break didn't work to shut things down. And they seem to be the sort of diseases that uh, children and young adults tend to get, a different spectrum. Uh, in older people, um, most of the cancers are either blood cancers or, as I say, the cancers of the epithelial tissue. And they arise in all, all the different um, organs of the body. Uh, the commonest is still lung cancer. That is an example of something that was self-induced. But let's be careful here. People didn't realize that it was so deadly and so dangerous for a long time. So you can't go back and say all those people in the 50s and 60s who, who smoked really heavily should have known better because they didn't know better. It was even advised in those times that doctors should smoke to calm, them to calm themselves yeah. down. You know? <laughs> yeah. so, so now we know better. And did, did, um, were you telling me, um, Kynwin, that some of the original research on stress and cancer was actually mm. funded by the tobacco industry? Yeah. Yeah, so that was one of the talks at Shine Connect a couple of years ago. We had a professor from the London School of Hygiene mm -hmm. and Tropical Medicine who had done research in the tobacco archives in the U.S., and they'd found that some of the researchers who were proposing this link um, were funded by the tobacco industry, and the argument was basically not that smoking gives you cancer, it's that you're stressed, so you started smoking, and it was the stress that gave you cancer. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some. he's published some papers um, on that. <laughs> As well. So, yeah, it's really interesting how that sort of thing gets into the general mm. consciousness. I think it's Hans Selye was the guy who, yeah. um, the psychologist mm. who was looking at stress, who sort of discredited. But going back to our earlier point where you need a mechanism, we know what the mechanism by which smoking causes lung cancer. We understand the, the chemicals and the mutagens, the, the damaged DNA, the irritants within the smoke and the tar and various other things. We, we know if you, if you use those chemicals and apply them to cells, they will cause mutations in cells. So this isn't just something that um, it's not like cannabis oil or something else like that where ooh, there's some weirdo connection here. We actually know what the physical connections are and why smoking causes cancer. What we don't know is whether it will cause cancer in one individual but not in another. And so in terms of like we were talking about kind of um, younger people's cancer and, and the developmental differences, mm -hmm. how does that play into um, having um, genes that predispose us to cancer? Well, um, <clears throat> now I've got to speak as a, as a as an evolutionary biologist here, uh, one has to remember that um, evolution works on organisms moving their genes on. That's where selection works. So anything that happens in your life after you've moved your genes on is pretty much irrelevant. Now, most, um, most adult cancers occur in the post-reproductive phase of life, and therefore there's probably you know not a good reason why they happen or why they don't happen whether people over the age over reproductive age died of cancer or something else or didn't die didn't make an awful lot of difference to selection and, and evolution in young people where do these cancers come from and wouldn't evolution have selected against them well of course the number is not very high and the guess that we have is 
that the processes that are needed to build a complicated human being with all the wonder and the, and the organs and everything working and everything else are sort of on a knife edge, which is they're very beautiful and they're very tightly poised once against another. But that means they are susceptible to a bit of a train wreck on, on occasions. And some combinations of the genes you inherit may predispose you to a train wreck, which means that one cell within one tissue that should have shut down when, when you reach the age of 20 didn't shut down when you reach the age of 20 and it kept on proliferating. And that has something to do with a whole basket of genes that you grew up with. But you could take another person with the same basket of genes and it wouldn't necessarily happen. Mm. So the idea is that cancers arise not because they're ghastly diseases with mean spirits inside them, but they are aberrations of normal processes within the body. And I think that's actually generally a, a very important principle. Uh, which is why also when cancers grow, they don't just, it's not just the cancer cells that form the cancer. There's integration with all sorts of other tissues within the body, the inflammatory cells and the immune cells and the blood vessels and various The whole thing is a highly coordinated structure. It's just aberrant. It shouldn't be there. But this coordination is still there. So that's telling us that this is some hacked version of normal process, an aberrantly hacked version of a normal process. So do all cancers, once they become aberrant, mm -hmm. um, do they all behave in the same way? No. Um, and they all, and, and actually, this is one of the questions I ask my undergraduates, which is, why is cancer deadly? And they all go, oh, put their hands up. And then I go, yeah. And they go, oh, oh, well, um, is, is it because? And suddenly, instead of telling me, they're asking me questions. So some cancers spread around the body metastasize and they uh, they they disturb and, and corrupt the functions of the other tissues within the body and that's how they're, they're deadly then other cancers spread locally like a lot of brain cancers they don't spread around the body but they spread into the brain and they're just as deadly and then there are other cancers that um, kill you for different reasons for example cancers of the cells that make insulin overproduce insulin and uh, basically, you know, that has a hormonal effect on you and can be really quite deadly. So different cancers kill for different reasons and they behave in different ways. And cancer isn't just cancer. The cancer is, is a disease that kills you is derived from, from a, a, an aberrant hacked disease, a, a disease that doesn't kill you. If you sliced open a 60-year-old human being, they'd be full of lumps and bumps all over the place. Uh, these are basically little cancers that failed because we have these defense mechanisms that shut down cancers. We are defended against cancers, but these defense mechanisms activate and the cancer is shut down and we end up with a little lump or a wart or anything else like that full of these things. Um, uh, it's just that a, a very occasionally one breaks through the other side and then forms a malignant disease. And it's still incredibly rare. You know, there's 100,000 billion cells in a human being. Uh, that's a one with 14 zeros after it. That's, it's hard to get your head yeah. around that number. So to, to give you an idea, it's the same as the number of stars in a thousand galaxies the size of the Milky Way. What? Right, and that's just in you. And cancers arise from a single cell. So one out of 100,000 billion cells picks up these mutations. The amazing thing is it happens so rarely. In fact, for us... The curiosity is not that cancer is common. It's common because we contain so many cells that could become cancer cells. The remarkable thing is how rare it is. And yet, even though cancers are rare, every time you cut your finger, you can rebuild the tissue very quickly. Mm -hmm. 
So cancer is a disease where the rebuilding program isn't just there and it's not there in, nor in, 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 in um, the, the normal patients. It's actually it, doing the right thing but in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. So cancers are diseases of, um, of context where the context that the cell normally uses to regulate where it is and how it's going to behave is lost or damaged or derailed in some way. Cancer is a, their disease is a molecular information and where information goes all right. So in terms of the, the future of how we deal with cancers, is some of it around um, uh, basically retraining them at their job? So that's an area that we're very interested in at the mm -hmm. moment. So um, the idea goes like this. Um, where does the peculiar um, the, um, look of different cancers come from? If you look at a cancer in the pancreas, it has a very signature set of characteristics. It's very dense with lots of connective tissue. If you look at cancer in the lung, adenocarcinoma of the lung, it's, it's very inflammatory and open and lots of immune cells whizzing around. These two cancers look very different from each other. Why, why do they look different from each other? Not only do they look different from each other, but actually most cancers in the pancreas look the same as each other. So cancers of the pancreas look like each other, but they look different from cancers of the lung. I mean, where does this come from? Okay. Well, the obvious place it comes from, and these are our more, most recent data, is it comes because actually when you damage a pancreas and repair it, the program you need to repair a pancreas is different from the program you need to repair a lung. And the cancers take on that the characteristics of that repair program. So it's a normal process. It just can't stop. And it can't stop because instead of being signaled by damage, it's being driven by these mutations in your DNA, in the, in the engines that drive the regenerative program. So that explains why cancers of a particular tissue tend to look like each other. Mm. Even though they may have different mutations, it's because they, the, the mutations have hacked into an underlying program. Now, you follow that through and you say, well, what happens after you in, if you damage a tissue? You rebuild it. And then, and to rebuild it, you need to integrate lots of different cell types to come along and remodel the tissue and burrow and make blood vessels and various other things. But then when you've rebuilt the tissue, you need to put it back together again as it was before it was damaged because it's highly abnormal. It's got blood vessels all over the place and weirdo stuff going on and, and immune cells cursing through it. And everything. It's not quite a quiet, normal tissue. So in order to make it normal, you've got to resolve that injury and move the tissue back to normal. And very little is known about that resolution process, but we know it happens in all injuries to tissues. So what we've been wondering is whether the resolution process, or what that tells you is this complicated thing that looks like a cancer following a normal injury can be resolved. You have the machinery to do it. If this is true, then even though cancers, which are the same process but driven by mutations look incredibly complicated. How could I ever put this, this stuff back in the string bag? It may well be that we have evolved programs that can do this. We just don't know how to activate them. So it's an interesting idea. The world is full of interesting ideas. But it does tell us that the complexity of cancers is somewhat illusory. That is, we know that they are complex, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't make them disappear by fairly simple groups of signals. And that's where we're interested at the moment. There are other views that every cancer is different and you have to develop a therapy around every different cancer. 
these two ideas are at opposite ends, uh, but they're not colliding because they may both be alternative answers to the same thing. But I'm very, very optimistic about the treatment of cancer in the future. Not all cancers immediately, not at once, but I've confidently predicted that um, my children who are in their uh, mid and late 20s, I don't think they'll be worrying about cancer when they're in their 70s or 80s. Oh, well, oh, that's only 50 years away then. Yeah. 50 years is a long time. Yeah. But yeah. I think they'll have other things to worry about. And so is that that's kind of where immunotherapies, do you think, are, yeah. are coming in then? That they'll help with that rebuilding yes. process? Yes. So, so we know now that, that if you take the, 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 the handbrake off your immune system, it's a dangerous thing to do because your immune system is constantly on the lookout for foreign bugs and viruses and various other things. Um, so you have to keep it active, but you have to keep a lid on it all the time. So it's constant dynamic tension. And as you know, in some diseases, the immune system can take over and you get autoimmune conditions and hay fever and everything else. And But, but nonetheless, it's this tightly capped thing. It's like, um, it, it's like, it looks like nothing's happening, but if you push your fists against one another as hard as you can, you start to shake like that. That's the state the immune system is in, right? It, it's cap on it and go, cap on it and go. And it's a very delicate balance. And we know that if we take the handbrake off, the immune system becomes more active and that in certain patients, in certain types of cancer, that can be used to attack their tumor. The issue is, what is the immune system actually seeing in the tumor? because the tumour is made up of your cells. Is it seeing something foreign and different? Or is it actually part of this injury resolution programme that actually takes damaged tissue and when it's been repaired, pulled, pushes the tissue back to its normal original state? We don't know. It's a big open question and a big discussion within the field. But very, very exciting. What cannot be denied is that immunotherapy is almost magical, and I use this word advisedly for a scientist, it's almost magical. It can take patients with certain types of cancer, only certain types of cancer at the moment, and who, who have failed all other therapies, and it can cure some of them, some of the time. And just the fact that it can cure some of them some of the time means it almost certainly can cure more of them more of the time if we understand more about how it works. But it is truly wonderful, and that's why we're all so fascinated by it. Is is that um, coming about also because now we can um, sequence someone's individual DNA and target it specifically to them? So instead of you have this type of cancer, there's this mm-hmm. kind of treatment that it's more, um, this is Kynwin Giles's cancer yeah. and we Precision can... medicine. Yeah, so in the future we're going to be very precise about what exactly that we're, we're able to do in terms of... There are two schools of thought. One is that this will, um, precision medicine will will be rapid. It will eventually become cheap. (coughs) It'll never be that cheap because obviously you have to design the therapy around the individual patient. But that is the way to cure cure cancers. Uh, The other is is an idea that we've been following, which is underpinning most cancers are a, a limited number of common mechanisms. And the fact that cancers look different is a bit of an illusion. They look different because they arise in different places. But actually, there are common mechanisms that drive them. And if you if you could make drugs against a common mechanism, maybe you'd have more impersonalized therapy. Uh, that is one type of, of therapy that worked against many cancers. We just don't know. We just don't know, and so both are being uh, being pursued very, very avidly, uh, often um, by people who disagree 
vehemently with each other, um, which is good because, you know, there isn't one right way of doing cancer research. There are lots of wrong ways of doing it, but there isn't a, a definite right way. You can't say the only way is to do it this way or that way. It's good that there's dialogue and disagreement and debate, and that drives us to, to look more closely at what's going on and work harder. Well, I'm very glad that you're on the case. Yeah, <laughs> I am too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're all um, really willing for that breakthrough and for minds that um, are open and and looking in all these crevices of, what was it, seven, like how many billions of cells? A hundred thousand billion. hundred thousand billion. And that's, Is that like a trillion? <laughs> Um, that like, yeah, no, that's, I a, feel like that's, that's a hundred more. trillion. Hundred trillion. trillion. Yeah. That makes my head hurt. Right. Yeah. That's I mean, a when... that's a that's an American trillion. <laughs> it, it's peanuts in a British trillion. <laughs> lots more zeros. Because yeah. I heard um, a thing that if our cells were lined up, that they could circumnavigate the world like three times or six times or yeah, something. I mean, like when you start to think of well, think of it. Every cell in your body has about a meter of DNA. So we're talking something like a, if you if you stitched the the DNA of every cell in your body along in a strip, it will be a, a you know a, basically a hundred thousand billion meters long. I can't remember how many kilometers that is divided by three, and that's the number of kilometers. I mean, it's yeah. a staggering amount of information, a staggering amount of genetic material. And and when you think about like how much information. Um, is on the internet that is, oh, yeah. that is useful and not useful. Um, it, I don't know. It could maybe that could circumnavigate the world <laughs> several oh, at least times. Three times yeah, I would have thought. Times. Yeah. So, um, so if someone's listening to this and they are thinking, you know, does this cause cancer? Can this help prevent cancer? Um, <clears throat> I'm in treatment. Is this good for me? Bad for mm. me? Where can they go to get more information? Well, I mean, there's a number of, um, I mean, the cancer charities are a very, very good source of, of information. They, they're they un, as unbiased as they can possibly be. Um, uh, and uh, certainly they, they all run websites and um, uh, that, that give you information. I mean, you know, in this country, we have this amazing uh, National Health Service full of, you know, wonderful doctors and nursing staff and, and, and other people who are just there to look after people who've got cancer. And, um, it, it, you know, assuming that one can get an appointment and various other sort of things, you know, they're, they're desperate to help uh, and, and give give good help. The, the problem is at the moment, with, with, with the best will in the world and the best technology in the world, which is always improving, um, you know, diagnosing cancer is, is not a straightforward, and some cancers, yes, but diagnosing an awful lot of cancers is not always easy. And most people who, I guess, you know, think they've got cancer probably don't have it. It's the commonest thing that is the most likely. That's the that's what the adage that um, GPs always use. Um, but if you want to know more, the Internet's a good place, but make sure you go to the right places. So there's, um, there's NHS England, there's the cancer charities, in the USA, there's the American Cancer Society. 
um, and uh, the National Institutes of Health. These are all good places, and other countries will have other good places. But, but look for something that has some level of, of a surety about it that is made up of uh, professionals and, and researchers who are really trying to work on the disease rather than trying to peddle their idea. Mm. That doesn't mean to say that all people peddling their idea are bad. I don't mean that at all. No. But, you know, you're looking for information that you can rely on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And part of the time that you will reach a point where people don't know anymore. And that is unfortunately where we are with some areas of cancer biology and cancer research at the moment. Yeah, and that's a that's a tough place to be, right? Yeah. I've been there. I remember spending hours kind of searching the internet and kind of then questioning what I was doing. And I think I was looking for some, I was looking for that one article out yeah, there that, that would... no one else had found that was going to tell me that X, Y, or Z was a cure and it didn't exist. But for Shine, we also, I mean, obviously, we, we don't produce a lot of that information because mm. other cancer charities do, but we always recommend the Cancer Research UK Science blog yep. um, because they <clears throat> often... Um, if there's something in the media, you know, a strip of bacon is going to cause cancer or double your cancer risk, mm -hmm. they will sort of break it down and look at the facts and explain, you know, maybe actually doubling your cancer risk might take it from, you know, yeah. half of 1% of to one and three quarters or something. Um, and then there's also a charity called Sense About Science, which produces a lot of stuff, including, I think, a guide called I've Got Nothing to Lose by Trying It, which sort of looks at, mm. you know, yeah. if you're going to overdose on apricot kernels, what might actually happen? Mm. So it's it's pretty good to check out those as well. And I should declare, you know, not a conflict, but Cancer Research UK fund most of my research. So I have a lot to do with them, and I think their sites are actually very good mm. in terms of you know, uh, public information. They, they they try hard, as do we all. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I think that that's the thing, is you want to know where to get the information from yeah. and find out, yeah, if there's any damage, um, if you should mm. be trying something or doing it to excess or, mm. you know, during treatment. These are all, like, really important things to know and um, and I hope that we've assuaged some of those middle of the night why <laughs> did yes. this happen and uh, maybe you know kind of it's kind of amazing that our body for most of the time with the other trillions yeah. and trillions <laughs> of cells um, is actually doing a really good job it certainly yeah. is yeah. it's amazing that we're here yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so thank you so much both of you for, for joining you. us today and um, if you have thoughts about this episode or about future episodes that you would like to hear you can contact us at Shine Cancer Support you can email us you can tweet us at Kynwin is there any other uh, you can of... it, you can send us a message on Instagram yeah. at Shine Cancer Support. Uh, Twitter is at Shine Cancer Sup because I think we ran out of space. Um, <laughs> or you can email us um, at hi at shinecancersupport.org. And if I could take this opportunity to thank Shine for all the work you do. Oh, well, th and thank you, Troy, for <laughs> yes. all your support. It's been it's great to have somebody so smart. <laughs> <laughs> Tell my mum. <laughs> <laughs> so till next time, see you later. Mm -hmm.